Now, I know many of you today walked in with numbers already swimming in your heads. 360, 16 by 9, 1080, 8.2 gigahertz. Well, we'd like to add one more number to the mix. And that number is two. Two, one, you are now listening to Enter VR, the podcast where we talk about all things virtual reality. I am Chris Miranda, your host, and on today's show, I'm speaking with Manish Gupta and James Blaha. You guys are Apollo VR, and you have something really, really, really cool and special in the works. Um, so thank you very much for being on the show, first of all. We're happy to be here. Uh, yeah, thanks, Chris. Let's, let's talk about what this is. What is this thing that you guys are working on? Um, let's get out of the way. Uh, so it's called Diplopia. It's a, a virtual reality game for people who have lazy eye uh, to help them improve their vision. Okay. And how long has this been in the works? What's the story behind it? How did it come about? Uh, we've been working on this for about, I guess I would have started in December. Um, and, you know, I, at first I was just, I had ideas of how I, I could, you know, um, implement using virtual reality um, some of the some new um, research that's been coming out um, lately, um, and so I was just kind of hacking on it at home for fun, see what I could do. Um, and I saw in 3D for the first time uh, right away when I first coded one part of it, and it was kind of like a switch. It just happened instantly in VR. Um, so I kind of dropped everything else, started working on it full time, um, started an Indiegogo campaign, ended up raising. Uh, $20,000, which was, I was only asking for $2,000 to get a Unity Pro license, and it ended up being, uh, you know, more in demand than I was expecting, so. That is extremely exciting, and and how did Manish, how did you get involved with uh, James's work? So, um, our friend Andrew had uh, bought an Oculus Rift, uh, the DK1, um, and I knew about that, then I heard that um, James had bought one, and I was confused because um, I I knew he couldn't see in 3D. I would ask him to go to 3D movies, and you know, always forget that um, that didn't work for him. So uh, he told me his idea, and then he told me about his first experience seeing 3D, and I was like, holy crap! You know, he's got something. And then um, he got accepted into the Leap Accelerator um, program here. And asked me if I wanted to join, and I was like, "Yeah, <laughs> great." And so I quit my job at IBM and uh, moved out here in San Francisco um, with James. What a what an awesome leap of faith, really! Like to go from IBM to work on something so cool like this. And I mean, how is it coming along? What, at what pro stage in development are you in currently in terms of this project? Um, so we released an alpha to our backers back in uh, February, um, and we've been working on a totally new version of the game um, based on the feedback we got from people using it. Um, and so we're actually going to be launching um, a closed beta in probably the next couple of weeks here. And how does it work? I mean, so, uh, yeah, like, what is it, what's happening with your software that is helping people 
potentially see in 3D and, 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 and get rid of... So, so by the way, and mind you, my ignorance, is it called, the, the scientific term for lazy eye, is it diplopia? Is that what it is, or no? Um, no, it's amblyopia. Amblyopia, okay. It's lazy eye. Uh, strabismus is crossed eye. Strabismus, okay. Um, and diplopia is double vision. Oh. Um, and so, in my case, I was born with strabismus, a crossed eye. It caused my amblyopia, my lazy eye, and I sometimes got double vision here and there, um... Uh, from time to time. Oh, thank you for enlightening me. I should have done my homework earlier. But yeah, so how does it work? You know, what do you, what do you do, and how did you figure out that this would work in the first place? So one of the major problems with people who have lazy eye is that their weak eye, uh, their brain has learned to suppress all the information coming from it. And so basically the brain would, would very, usually very early on in childhood take the shortest route to the best vision. So if the eye isn't lined up or if it's a little bit blurrier than the other one, the brain just kind of ignores it. Even if, um, you know, even if it's blurry for a reason that can be corrected with glasses, usually it can be corrected with lenses and there's nothing really that physically wrong with the eye. But since the, they learned so young to ignore it, the brain never had an incentive um, to, to learn how to use it. And so what we do is we'll take um, an object in the virtual scene or several objects in the virtual scene and increase the brightness to the weak eye of those objects, decrease the brightness to the strong eye, and that kind of breaks through the suppression right away. Mm -hmm. um, and so then we can do things like, um, so, so we have one of the games is a brick breaking game where you have a paddle and a ball and you just try bricks like breakout. Um, and the ball is only shown to your weak eye. The paddle is only shown to your strong eye. And the bricks are shown in this varying contrast to both eyes. Um, and so the, the player has to use both their eyes together, um, you know, and they have to fuse the same image in order to bring the paddle up to the ball um, in order to play the game. So, so we're kind of assigning, we're giving the person's brain the goal of using both eyes together. Whoa, whoa. How did you, how did you figure out that th that particular, and by the way, kudos on gamifying the whole experience. I, I, that's really cool, by the way. Um, how did you figure out that that particular way of doing it would would actually work? Like, how did that come along? So about three or four years ago, um, the consensus was that there was no way to help people. To help adults, any anyone older than nine or ten. There's this idea of the the critical age of nine or ten, where you know the brain is plastic and trainable before that age, and it's not after that age. Um, and there have been these studies coming out just three or four years ago that show that that's not true, and that it's actually is trainable in older um, you know older ages. You just have to kind of provide stimulus that doesn't happen in the real world. Um, it's not uh, it's not trainable under normal seeing conditions with both eyes seeing the exact same thing all the time. Yeah. Um, you know what I find fascinating that here, here we are in the 21st century and it's it's we we have this like um, this 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 uh, condition that is still around and you know you'd figured that by now we humans would have figured some you know wizard sciency way of making it better but. But but no, I mean, what is the current status quo? How do people, 
who don't have access to VR or um, how do they treat the, this, this condition? Um, the most common method right now is patching. Patching. Um, so that you'll, you'll put a patch on the good eye uh -huh. so that force the person to use their weak eye and the idea is to strengthen it that way. Um, I did like hundreds of hours of patching as a kid. And I, I really, really hated it. K kids really hate it. And they don't understand really why they're doing Like, they, well, at least I didn't. I mean, I knew it was for my eye, but all I really knew is that they were making me wear it and I couldn't really see when they, when, you know, when they put it on and I couldn't really do anything. I'm not supposed to wear it at school. That's like I can't read. Oh no! <laughs> you know, um, and the problem with it is that you're only using one eye at a time, so you're never training the person's brain to use both eyes together. That is, that seems like common sense. <laughs> like, <laughs> why that isn't that? I mean, what did it feel like to have to be a, only able to see through that through the weak eye? Like, or what? What did it look like, really? Um. So it'll be different for different people depending on what causes their lazy eye. Mm -hmm. For me, you know, everything was clear, but I couldn't really control what I was looking at. So like, I, I might see text on the page and all the text is clear, but I can't read any of it because I can't like focus my eye long enough, um, you know, to, to read the words mm -hmm. in a line, you know, kind of wander around and if I was lucky, I might catch a word or two, but I couldn't like choose which one. Um, and now I can actually cover my, my strong eye and, and read with Whoa. my left eye. Whoa. It's still not as easy as reading with my strong eye alone, but I can do it now or before I couldn't at all. So. Whoa. Whoa, dude, that is awesome. <laughs> that's really cool. Um, wow, that's really cool. What was it like growing up with, with this condition, dude? Like, how, how did you... You know, did, did you feel different? Did you feel, I mean, I just, I, I just, I, I would like to feel what it'd be like to be in your shoes, you know, and grow up with, with this. I mean, how did, how was it? Um, you know, it wasn't pleasant. <laughs> uh, the patching and the eye exercises were, you know, pretty bad. Um, I mean, it's, it's not, it what, it's not as bad as some things, you know, and actually, I've spoken with so many people who have lazy eyes since beginning this, and I realized that my experience wasn't nearly as bad as a lot of other people's experience. Because mm. um, I had strabismus, but it wasn't as uh, it wasn't su super severe strabismus um, compared to some other people. Um, and my the suppression of my eye was really really strong. So it, it was I think I have more suppression than a lot of people, even though my strabismus wasn't quite as severe. Um, but you know, people would always tell me like, I wasn't giving them eye contact. Like, why, why, like, why aren't you giving me eye contact? I was like, I'm trying, you know, I don't know. <laughs> oh, uh, and you know, people with lazy eye are often very self-conscious that everyone knows that they have it and that everyone's, you know, judging them. Um, and I, I wasn't too worried, but I was kind of aware that people, you know, interacted with me a little differently because of it. Hmm. Did it, yeah, what a, what a thing we take for granted, us, like, that we, you know, like I, that I take for granted, the fact that I can see in 3D and I didn't, um, and I didn't, I didn't, I didn't suffer from this. I mean, what are some of the stories that came out of the woodwork when you, you know, put this out in the public and, you know, what were some of the stories that people shared with you, uh, with, like, in terms of their experience and, you know. Yeah, I mean, you know, people 
who had to wear patches as kids, you know, you get teased for wearing a patch. Um, and, and if the cross eye is fairly severe, you know, everyone knows about it. And, and the person is usually pretty self-conscious about how it looks all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for people who have very severe cross eye, um, you can get surgery to correct how it looks, but it almost never um, helps you see better. Wow. Um, and there's a bunch of risks involved in, in you know, in, in having the surgery when it's, you know, and it's all, almost always purely cosmetic. So, and, and a lot of people get it just for that, you know, um, and, and people with lazy, people who have visible cross eye, lazy eye, um, they have a harder time getting jobs, you know, they, they can't drive, um, they can't be a professional driver. A lot of people drive, but, um, you can still get a license in most states. Um, you know, you can't be a pilot can't be a professional athlete there's there's a lot of things you actually can't do without good vision yeah in the emails we received um i remember reading a lot from the guys there would be you know um when i was growing up i was you know didn't have the confidence to approach girls because of you know um my lazy eye um and then uh there's a lot of women who are very self-conscious uh, also about their eye in the same way um, and then we talked to a, um, it was a TV news reporter and he was, um, telling us the techniques he used. He's on TV a lot, all the time. And he was telling us the techniques he uses to kind of, um, uh, make it so his eye strains out. So he, he could tell when his eye was off, when his lazy eye was off and he would kind of like quickly turn his head. Um, to kind of straighten it out, and he was it was interesting um, learning that, you know, there's people who have this problem, and they're aware of it, and they have these um, ways to kind of compensate for it, and they have to worry about that all the time, especially if you're on TV. So, I, I find the, um, I find it that you guys, uh, if so, so considering this is successful, and, I, and I'm, I'm crossing my fingers, and I, I'm actually confident that I think it will be, um, you guys could quite possibly bump up the birth rate because people will get all their confidence. They'll <laughs> feel better. And, you know, it'll be easier to talk to women and vice versa. So uh, thank you for that <laughs> on behalf of the American taxpayer. <laughs> um, I'd be happy if that was the result. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so is it like a is it like a genetic thing or is it something that happens in the womb? I mean, how does it how does you know how does it happen? Uh, so there are actually a bunch of different causes. Um, most people are, are born with a small problem with the eye um, at, you know, at birth. So, so when they're very, very young, you know, you know even, you know, most pe- a lot of people are born with a refractive error, um, you know, myopia or farsightedness, nearsightedness. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's a lot more in one eye than the other, that's what can cause the suppression the suppression leads to the eye, you know, not developing as much as it should, or in the eye muscle not becoming as strong as it should. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's probably the most common uh, single cause. Wow. Yeah, that, man, do you know, like, a, a percentage of people in, in, in the population that have this, that suffer from this? Is there, like, a statistic? Yeah, so about um, 4 to 6% of people are diagnosed with strabismus and or amblyopia. Mm -hmm. Um, And recent data from the 2010 census 
indicates that it could be a whole lot higher than that yeah. um, of undiagnosed cases. Um, so it's it's you know probably around um, you know 10% of the people um, have some kind of a what would be considered a lazy eye. Like a spectrum, like a de- to some degree, sort of like a, 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 a lazy eye, right? Like, uh, oh, wow. And, um, and actually, there's evidence too that um, up to I think it's about 56% of people have some binocular vision issues. <laughs> Um, and most of them don't know it. Uh, most of it goes completely undiagnosed. And it's something that, if people are unaware of, could be an issue for virtual reality. And I think it's it's one of the primary reasons 3D movies haven't taken off as much as people were expecting. Because um, a lot of people don't think they have a binocular vision disorder, but then they'll say, well, I don't really like 3D movies. You know? mm-hmm. it, it's probably you know convergence issue or an accommodation so convergence is your ability the ability of the eyes to look at the same thing either close up or far away um and accommodation is the ability of the eyes to focus on something either close up or far away Hmm. and so a lot of people um, when they look at something close they'll get double vision Um, and they think it's normal to get double vision but there's actually, you know, a range in here in, mo- in normal where what's considered normal is actually very, very close to your face without getting double vision. Is there a, 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 a surefire way like uh, that someone can test themselves at home? Like if someone's listening to this right now, like can they figure out right now how to determine if they suffer from some sort of uh, binocular vision disorder? Do you, I mean, is it holding my finger and figuring out at what point like? Yeah, I mean that that's that's for um convergence issues. Okay. For near convergence issues, you can hold your finger out, look at it with both eyes, bring it up until you get double vision. Okay. Um and you know, I think normal is about an inch or two away from your nose before it happens. Oh my god. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um but some people even a foot out you know, or, or six, you know, yeah. six to twelve inches out, we'll start getting double vision, Whoa. and they just thought, you know, people couldn't look at things that close. And of course, in VR, people are putting all this interface really close to the face, you mm-hmm. know, and so a, a huge number of people are gonna have problems seeing that well. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think people need to be aware of, especially in VR and interface design, about some of these issues. Definitely. And we're we're gonna be making tests to determine exactly the amount um, of all these kinds of problems. Yeah, and the reason, um, part of the reason why, you know, 50, the number is so high and um, we don't know about it is probably because, I mean, I go to the eye doctor once a year max and spend half an hour there and he does the same tests, you know, acuity testing and not really anything else, um, testing the pressure in my eye. Um, ocular pressure, but um, that's just one day. And so with our software, we're going to try to make it so you get more data points for more tests. Yeah. And so you can track it for the whole, you know, it, how, however many days you play it, you'll be able to see how was my convergence this day? How was it this day? Did it change? And we'll, and we'll see. Well, yeah, that uh, that's a good point you bring up. I haven't been to the eye doctor since, or or had an eye test since 2010. It's like four years, and I, it, I wouldn't get one 
me being the dummy testosterone driven young male uh like <laughs> i wouldn't get one until I, I i there was a clear and present problem in my eyesight but if but if i lived with something my whole life and didn't know it was a that you know and, and didn't know that it was a problem and didn't know that this isn't how everybody sees then i probably would have never paid attention to it this is this brings to mind like well when i see people or when i hear people try out the oculus rift and you get these sort of three camps one that you know really really likes it then there's one who who doesn't care or sort of like oh okay that's cool and then there's the one who are like ah, i don't see it i don't see it i don't i don't know what you guys are you know what's the hype i don't get it and in that camp of people i sort of you know think there is a possibility that this person can't see in 3d um and so that's really cool that you guys are working on that particular problem as well um i mean how uh how, how can how can oculus or how can vr companies and software makers get around that that issue i mean is it is it really about putting something out there that can determine yeah you can't see in 3d um let's let's solve it i mean how, what can be done um i mean, i think what what we want to do is fix the problem for people um, and, you know, and also as an aside, um, I almost didn't get the Oculus to even begin working on all of this because I thought 3D is a gimmick, and uh, even if I could see in 3D, why would I want to, and all <laughs> that. Um, and then when I got it, e even without 3D, the head tracking made it made it awesome. <laughs> And I, I was way more impressed than I was expecting to be when I first put the Oculus on. And it was that first DK1 Oculus demo with, like, you know, the, the the room with the lines on it. And then you look behind you and there's a car there. You're like, wow, there's a car behind me. <laughs> you know? that, even though it, like, it doesn't look that impressive, but it was still super impressive to me. And, and so I think it's, you know, it's really all about the head tracking, um, low latency head tracking. Um, and the 3D is cool but if you can't see it um you know it's not going to be worse than the real world as long as you have the good head tracking and good resolution yeah. um but these these other issues with um convergence and accommodation i think since those are so common vr developers and vr hardware manufacturers need to be aware of it and we need to you know design around it and, and we hope we can you know improve a lot of those conditions too um but you know especially like like the example of not putting ui stuff right in front of your face even if you know if the person testing it may think it's fine mm -hmm. but you know ha half of the population may not think it's fine and those kinds of details really matter yeah. and oculus has those um i think in their sdk they have a best practices for developers and they kind of say, you know, put the UI, I think it was two to three meters away. Mm. Um, so so there are some guides that um, developers uh, should be sure to follow to make it so users aren't uncomfortable while they play their game. Good. Yes, please, if you're a developer, read the best practices guide. <laughs> uh, because I didn't. I should have. Um, the uh, So what is it, what is it going to look like? I mean, what... It, what will that uh, process look like of getting this out there? What is your model of distribution slash monetizing? I know it's a loaded word, like question, but um, we're gonna we're gonna go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, so right now the plan, um, you know, we're already kind of we're already selling pre-orders on the website. 
Um, and we're probably going to be selling um, bundles of hardware and software um, directly from our website um, to people. Um, and we're, you know, we're going to be aiming for a release. Um, you know, it's always hard to be sure about release dates, but we're going to be aiming for a release this year. Mm-hmm. That's exciting. Aiming, uh, uh, nothing finalized, obviously, yeah. but okay, good, cool. Right. Um, and, and so, I mean, what are what are some challenges facing you? I mean, in terms of getting this out there, what are your biggest challenges at this point? Well, first, we want to make sure it works, and we are getting um, help from UCSF with that. We're um, starting a pilot study soon, and we are looking for um, people in the Bay Area with um, strabismus or amblyopia uh, who might want to be part of that study. That should be starting um, within the next couple months. Um, so if you're in the Bay Area and you're interested um, or curious, please send these guys an email, get in touch with them. Um, and and uh, you mean, how, how, how can people get in touch with you at, at this point if, they're, if they want to be a participant in this study or you know, get a hold of you or your software or, or whatnot? Um, they can visit the website, diplopiagame.com. Um, we have a contact form there where you can get a hold of us. Um, and you can also pre-order um, the game there and find out a lot more information um, about the study and about, um, you know, the software and how it works. Sounds good. And what is the... What has been the res- the response from the status quo, from physicians and people who've been doing, you know, who've been trying to treat this condition in, uh, you know, uh, w- with these le- legacy methods, you know, what what has been their response to what you guys are bringing out to the table? Optometrists and ophthalmologists and vision therapists have been overwhelmingly supportive and positive. Um, they they know <laughs> that nobody likes patching <laughs> you know they they know more than anybody and they know that it's you know hundreds of years old <laughs> the strategy you know it, it hasn't been updated at all you know and so people you know you know most most optometrists kind of were thinking there, there has to be a better way and there have been kind of you know some glimmers of better ways so when people see what we're working on about how we're, we're focused on making it not just bearable for the user, but actually fun for the user, right? Like, compared to patching, you know, a kid's not going to get teased for playing virtual reality games. People are, you know, their friends are going to come over and want to play it too, <laughs> you know? So, um, you know, we're, we're really trying to focus on the experience that people with um, amblyopia uh you know, have to go through in order to address the problem. It sounds like a win-win. You're you're gamifying it. You're making it cool. Uh, in my opinion, you're making it sexy. Um, and it sounds weird to say, but like, is there a, is there so is there an age range? I mean, is, is there an age range between like, all right, anyone below this age should not try it or is not ready, and then anyone above this range, we can't promise you results. I mean, is there, has it been any, you know, information on that yet? So, so far, um, everyone who's tested it has been 18 or older. Um, and 
it looks like the best results were coming from people younger than about 50, 55. Um, but it still seems like people older than that were getting results. Um, people who are younger, we, it should work even better the younger you are. Um, but we haven't been testing it on young kids because the Oculus isn't designed for a small IPD. Um, and so that, that's kind of been one of the reasons why I've been holding off, um, you know, having younger kids try it. But, you know, if it's working on adults, you know, all, all of the all the evidence suggests it'll work even better on kids. And, um, you know, we're working right now on supporting some of the foam based head mounted displays, uh, Google Cardboard, Drove's Dive, um, which should be, you know, more suitable for the smaller IPD for kids. Sounds awesome. Yeah, that that's really exciting because. Uh, if uh, I mean I'm not I'm not a I'm not a scientist I'm a, I study political science that doesn't count at all but I, you would imagine that the plasticity in the in a, in a younger person's brain is a lot greater and therefore um, I mean you kids can bounce back from like disease like young kids can bounce back from diseases or like injury like like that they they rebuild like cyborgs they're pretty crazy um, yeah and that's one of the reasons why they thought you know you could only um, improve it before they were nine or ten because it's so much easier. Um, so, so it should be a lot more effective in kids. Um, that's yeah, that's extremely exciting. How does how does one go about raising money or uh, gathering awareness for something like this? I mean, this is sort of like um, is it hard to pitch? Is this hard, is you know this idea that we can use virtual reality this this technology that is, uh, you know, coming out of, uh, you know, rising again like the phoenix, um, and we can use it to potentially treat this this condition that you know hasn't been properly treated for hundreds of years. I mean, how has it been difficult? How, what's that process been like? Um, you know, so many people have a lazy eye <laughs> that if you, you you talk to enough people and there are investors with lazy, you know. If if 10% of people have it, you know, 5 to 10% of people have it, then almost every investor has someone in their family who has it, or they themselves have it, or one of their kids has it, you know, or, or their, their spouse. Um, so it, it hasn't been hard for, the, for just that reason alone to talk to people about it, to get connections with people, um, to pitch to investors. Um, because everyone kind of has a personal stake, e even if they don't have it, they, they know a close person who has it. And so, you know, everyone wants to see, um, you know, the state, the state of, uh, things in, in this area improve. Yeah. And it's a new technology and it's helping people. And I think we received a lot of attention. James received a lot of attention on his Indiegogo campaign because of that, um, just people are excited for VR and and people are always um, really excited to hear what we're doing because we're we're helping people does it help or or at all to be near Silicon Valley in, in San Francisco um, do you guys think you could have pulled this off in another city um, I mean is, I don't know like how, how is it like are people more receptive here is there more investors or what is it How's that coming along? It absolutely helps, okay. <laughs> uh, especially compared to living in Michigan, where we're from. Oh, okay. um, you know, 
there there's just so many so many more ways for uh you know to find help uh to find connections um you know there, there's investment out here um in michigan it, so much you know the economy's not doing so great in michigan um you know it, it's it's a lot cheaper to live there um and work there but you know the increased cost of living in silicon valley is more than worth it um from just the perspective of, of all the tech people here all the news all the investors i mean it's it's a huge difference it's cool. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast and you are curing some sort of uh, condition with VR, get yourself to San Francisco. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a place to be. It is yep. uh, for, for this sort of stuff. Awesome. I mean, uh, if you're listening right now and you're really into VR and all you want to listen to is just VR, you can you can stop right now because we're about to enter the rabbit hole um and the rabbit hole is is a place where we talk about the most random stuff um, um so so prepare yourselves uh gentlemen uh, surprise so so my first question is let me paint you a scenario right let's say uh manish james uh, a a lab of sci a group of scientists a revered scientists uh, come up to you and say james uh, manish let me borrow some of your dna and from that DNA, they are able to lab grow milk. Would you drink your own milk from your own DNA? Definitely. <laughs> no hesitation. <laughs> None whatsoever. Yeah. Extremely curious. <laughs> James, what is your answer, um, sir? I don't think so. No, I don't, <laughs> no, I don't you, think I would. I'd do it. It's you, mine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's, it's my body and I do what I want. Yeah. That, it's my... I wouldn't drink yours, but maybe sell it on eBay. Yeah. <laughs> see what. See, <laughs> People see, sell see some weird stuff be, yeah, on see, eBay, too. See if someone else would want it. Yeah. There's, uh, yeah, there's some weird stuff on eBay. There's like... Um, uh, if you're listening and you have children around, you can uh, earmuff their ears right now. There's women who who sell their like used panties, and people like mm -hmm. buy them on eBay. That's crazy. It's like a thriving industry. <laughs> I think there's a website where they sell women's breast milk too. I, I think so. Whoa. Yeah. It's like kind of a fetish website. <laughs> that that I mean, whatever floats your boat, man. I'm not that I visited open or anything. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would, I, I would actually would try my own milk. I would, yeah. I would be curious. Um, what if they? Okay, well, let's let's say um, because of climate change, uh, because of the methane being released. Another scenario, because of the methane being released into the uh, atmosphere, and all of a sudden, holy crap, we can't sustain six billion point, you know, six billion plus cows on planet Earth. So we got to cut down on the milk. Uh, you know, w would you drink someone else's milk? Then, and they say, "Hey, it has less cholesterol and is better for you." How good does it taste? Ooh, that's a good question. If people were saying it tasted great, I'd have to give it a try. Yeah, yeah. Same I mean, way. If it's healthier, it tastes great. Then at some point, you got to get past it and just be like, "Okay, this is better for the environment. It's going to be better for everyone involved." Start and drinking if it's like milk. pasteurized or whatever the process is to remove the pathogens, because. I don't want to get sick from any breast milk. That's true. That is true. Yeah, I, I, that's a great image inside my head. Now, pasteurized human milk. Like, <laughs> you have herds of people roaming the prairie. Um, 
I know there's a company making um, milk without animals. Oh. Um, I'm not sure exactly how they're doing it, but it's kind of going to be, you know, it's supposed to be vegan milk. Yeah, it's yeah, not vegan harming any milk. animals, yeah. um, but it's, you know, molecularly similar to milk or molecularly the same as milk. Wow. That is, that's fascinating. That's crazy. Is it, do you think it'll get cheaper or, or is it, I mean, I wonder how much it costs. Uh, it must in the long run. Um, yeah. Who knows? In the long run. Let's move on to the next question. The next, so, so another random question I have. Um, so, so the other day I was listening to a radio show and they were talking with the scientists who were saying, you know, we need to pay more attention to uh, our sun because we are overdue, so they say, for a solar storm, but not just any solar storm, a super solar storm that can knock out our power grid altogether. And, you know, uh, they were saying, like, you, you know, you have these transformers, you know, these giant transformers that, you know, help, ha you know, uh, have electricity for all of us, and they cost $10 million, and they take two months to repair. Um, and, you know, it could take a whole year. If a, if a is giant solar storm strikes the Earth, it could take a whole year for humanity to get back their electricity. Hypothetically speaking, let's say that happens. What would you do uh, with your time? What would you do with uh, w with yourself? Like like I mean, what do you what do you do if if all of a sudden, in the snap of a finger, we don't have electricity for a whole year? Have you ever seen Alone in the Wilderness? It's a documentary. Well, I would go into the Alaskan wilderness and build myself a cabin. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone should watch that. It's called Alone in the Wilderness. It's um this guy. It's on YouTube. Right yeah, now. yeah, it's on YouTube, but it's amazing. What it's is amazing? What is your reasoning behind? And I'll get to you in a sec, James. But what is your reasoning behind going off to Alaska? I there's no electricity, so might as well build a cabin. Yeah, yeah. Be in the woods, be yeah. self far away from people. Yeah. That. Why do you think it's 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 better to be far away from people? Do you if you watch Alone in the Wilderness, if you just watch a little bit, you'll be like, oh my god, I need to do that in my life. <laughs> I need to be like this guy. It's amazing. One with nature. One with nature. Do you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one I did see was the guy who um, uh, went to Alaska and got killed by a grizzly bear. Oh yeah, I heard yeah, about that. That was the one. That was that's a sad story. But like he was. I guess that's the opposite. That is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But do you think? Uh, so James, what would you do? What would you spend your time uh, with for a whole I year think without electricity? I would start trying to build renewable. Energy sources, so like windmill, um, or or if possible, go out in the wilderness, find a nice river, dam it up, make some hydroelectric, um, or you know, solar Stirling engines are like relatively easy to make and fairly cheap. So I think I think you know if, if it was really happening, people would start getting um, you know their ingenuity out and, and start building. It would kind of yeah, we got to build all this stuff anyway eventually. So I think it would just kickstart the pro the issue and people would start decentralizing the power grid. And but I, you could do that in Alaska by the cabin you make. Yeah, that's so, true. That's I, true. Yeah, and start your own colony where people can come down and be like, James, can we join you, man? And you because know, you're gonna have all so much power all of a sudden. You you'll be like, hey, man, if I leave. You need someone to take care of that generator or that whatnot. Like, how how would you be? How would you, quote unquote, rule this 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 
group of people now. Harvest all their breast milk? <laughs> <laughs> That's Number how we one. get people to come in the first place. <laughs> they won't care that much about the electric. <laughs> They'll just be there for the free human breast milk. <laughs> human male breast milk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from our DNA. Yeah. Uh, so I've heard. And and don't quote me on this, but if you if uh, if you suckle on a man's uh, breast long enough, the mammary glands in, in, on that man's chest will actually start producing milk. Have you guys heard about that, or am I being weird? I've definitely heard about that. Okay, okay. I believe it. Okay, sounds believable. Yeah. Sounds sounds sound scientific <laughs> enough. Yeah. All the machinery's there, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> I like your optimism, though, like, you know, how you said human ingenuity would kick in and we would figure out a way, like, you know, to actually get things back in order again. I I tend to, to see it, like, both ways, sort of, like, yes, that would be awesome because, you know, I feel like humanity or us humans are at our best when our backs are against the wall. You know, we're very reactionary, I feel like, uh, and I think that's why... You know, I don't mean to get ideological, but like I feel like that's why climate change sort of doesn't take off in the mainstream consciousness because it's just it's something that is creeping creeping up on us. You know, it's not like imminent present danger that's holy crap, we're all gonna die. No, it's not. It's not. But it's been starting to. I, I think enough of the effects are becoming obvious enough where people are just now beginning <laughs> yes. to have that reaction. Yeah. Um. And and. I, and that's why I'm optimistic about it too, because I think I think you're right that when society's back is to the wall, that's when big action takes place, big change takes place, and you know historically societies have been capable of you know these awe-inspiring um, technological breakthroughs, societal changes, and I, I think we will see it, um, even if we may be past that tipping point of runaway global warming. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm still an optimist. Uh, I think, you know, we'll start geoengineering and hopefully we don't mess up. I like the idea <laughs> of geoengineering. Uh, but before I get to that, um, I sort of see, you know, the more and more I, I live on planet Earth, I'm sort of seeing society, humanity, slash, as, uh, as a, a procrastinating college student. Kind of like a B level, like a B grade kind of college student who just, you know, we're, we're, we're party, we're rocking it. Um, and holy crap, we got a final, let's, let's crunch time, like, you know, four hours before it, you know, three in the morning. Um, that's not me. That's not who I was. Uh, yeah, yeah, was. <laughs> but geoengineering, that's a really cool thing that I think about. Like, how long do you think before we are actually able to manipulate the planet's slap, climate, you know, biosphere, fauna, like flora? <clears throat> We have been just accidentally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I think it would be nice if we put some thought into it. Yeah. And, and like it's gonna have it's happening, has been happening, will happen either way. So we need to like be conscious of the pros and cons of our actions and design a system rather than just let things happen and try to figure out what's going on years later. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's definitely something I I, I I agree with. I mean, just the thought that like, you know, we have all these issues that are that are happening on this, you know, the pale blue dot sort of thing. Like, you know, we're on this rock that is, you know, we're alone and we don't have another home. And what are we gonna do? Like, uh, that's why did someone was saying how this this century is gonna be the century of like 
bioengineering of how we're going to be able to manipulate life uh, just how we're able to manipulate software you know um, and it'd be cool if we could somehow engineer a tree that a genetically engineer a tree that could like you know draw in a hundred times more carbon dioxide grow ten times faster than regular trees and just plant the shit out of them everywhere you know but then, it, you know, what if it backfires? Like, <laughs> all of a sudden, they become sentient. And Kill switch. Yeah. Actually, um, I was getting really interested in synthetic biology before I was doing this. I made a, a little lab at my home. Um, and it's actually easier than ever <laughs> uh, to genetically modify things at home. Um, and I, I think the place, even today, you could do it at home. You could figure out how to do it online. There's resources. Um, you can order DNA on the internet, so like you can, there are there's software where you can design um, a plasmid, um, so like a sequence of DNA, and order it on the internet to ship to your door, and then for not so much money, you know, you can take a plant and genetically modify it and grow it up, um, and you know, I, I think what it's going to happen in in the next couple of years is genetic engineering. We're we're going to make software languages that basically compile um to um atcg you know that compile mm. to uh genetic code yeah and so I, I i think it's going to become uh just just like the software explosion program explosion uh, moore's law you know price it for printing and reading dna is dropping faster than moore's law um and it's, it's already affordable for you know hobbyists um so I, I, it's automation is increasing. It's making it faster and faster and faster every year. So I, I think we're going to see some really, really impressive things in the next couple of years. James, you are um, you're blowing my mind here. Uh, I got <laughs> you are blowing my mind. That sounds extremely exciting. Uh, but I got to see it two like two ways. One, I, I can see somewhere, you know, in a in a garage, some kid will geoengineer the next cure for like or dying like people will you know somehow be able to not die naturally they'll just keep going um that would be insane that would be amazing that would change humanity forever imagine if we could be like you know one of them turtles that live for 300 years you know uh i think that'll happen yeah i i think that i think so too but you, know, you the, have you heard of calico how uh, enlightened me? Uh, it's Google's Google's new company that's researching longevity, human longevity, uh -huh. and their goal is to extend human lifespan, um, you know, eventually indefinitely. Oh, I like that. So, would you want to live, Manish and James? Would you guys like to live indefinitely, or, or is there a good, you know, age range? Like, all right, I, I'll be happy if I make it to a thousand, and I can stop there. Like, what, what do you think? I always thought that I would be okay living forever. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. At least having the choice. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's nicer to have the choice. You can always stop living if you want yeah. to, but yeah. <laughs> Philosophically speaking, like, what? Why would you want to live forever? Are you? Are you? Do you fear death? Like, do you? Um, I mean, what is it? I, I want to see what's gonna happen. Really, yeah. it's like a movie. I want to. I want to know what happens next. Yeah, we got at least a thousand years worth of stuff to do. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. Yeah. The, so the contrast to to it, I don't know if you guys heard the the Russian billionaire who like who spent a billion dollars on straight up just finding the cure to dying to like 
Yeah, he has the goal 2045, um, right? He wants to have human avatars or something, or, like, he wants to be able to ha- keep a brain alive outside of a human body. Whoa. It's like Futurama. Like, uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, yeah, that's a that's a that's a this is a, a like a fascinating subject. The contrast to this this explosion of you know genetic engineering is the fact that like somewhere somewhere in, someone in their garage could just as easily engineer a super virus or a super thing that could be worse. You know, I remember when I was in um, in high school, my I had a freshman project where I was researching nuclear weapons and I was looking through every article I could find about nuclear weapons and. You know, and I stumbled upon one um, on how to make one. Hi, NSA. And, like, uh, they were, uh, you know, they were. They, they, there's this article about a kid who, who actually, like, made a radioactive, you know, I think it was a dirty bomb in his garage. And the FBI got a hold of it, you know, of him. Yeah, I know there was a kid who made some kind of a reactor. reactor yeah. Ah, that's the one. Yeah, that's the one. That was it could have exploded and been a lot like a dirty bomb. Yeah. But it didn't. That's insane to me because could you know, technology is is you know morally neutral. It doesn't care about our morals, right? So, you know, what what? How do you think our society? How how are we going to react as humans if 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 we see people, you know, engineering something like this? I mean, we're so scared of something like Ebola these days. You got these you know giant just these uh scare mongering you know phases where news organizations are making all this money because people are scared when watching them but imagine if someone creates something crazy like that like simian flu i think it's hard to do by accident ah i see um in in the wild everything's mutating randomly you know and so, in general, genetic modification is much more targeted and specific, and you have to know what you're doing to get the change you want. Um, and so, I, I think there there may be a scare of someone doing it maliciously, mm-hmm. but I think there are way, way more people doing it for the benefit of mankind than will be trying to hurt people. Uh-huh. And I think that, on average, is mostly true with technology, especially newer technologies that are out in the open. So I think, like, an open source, open community, biohacking is really important. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Gentlemen, you have survived the rabbit hole. 20 minutes of the rabbit <laughs> hole. That is, uh, that, is, uh, that is a record in my book. Uh, uh, let's go back to virtual reality for a little bit before we close things off. Um, you know, just... Uh, you know, fundamentally, what was it about VR that attracted you in the first place? You know, what was it? Is it what was the allure? Um, you know, in the beginning, um, I had never tried the Oculus Rift before um, jumping on this project with James, um, but it's awesome, and I just got the DK2 a couple weeks ago, and it's a really, really awesome experience. I've gotten a chance to try the demos. Um, and it's really interesting what people are making, and I'm really excited to see um, it get bigger and, you know, more people, more developers um, come out and make uh, more things. But then there's, I think, a really interesting thing is the um, the therapeutic benefits that could come out of it, such as um, diplopia and, and um, you know, there's I've heard of some people trying to make um, some kind of therapies that might... Uh, treat depression using VR. 
Um, PTSD. PTSD. Um, anxiety. There's meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think. I think all the there are a lot of therapeutic uses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. More more than people realize right now. Yeah. And, and to think that you know, well, here's here's what we know, here's what we don't know, and here's and then there's as we go come along, we're gonna discover things that we didn't know that we didn't know, like because it's just such a wide ranging. Uh, technology I feel like never had the the ability to you know control the stimulus um, that's being shown to your eyes in such a controlled manner that's so easy to do what do you guys think it um, uh, what do you think is missing how can how can VR really cross the uncanny valley like um, you know is it screen resolution is it uh, latency, lower latency, is it a lighter headset? I mean, what do you guys think? I think it's not screen resolution. Um, I mean, it's nicer to have better resolution, but people, plenty of people get presence on the lower, on DK1. I, I think a lot of it is in software. Um, head, head tracking latency is probably the most important single thing in hardware, mm. I think. And it has, if it's perfect all the time, especially the positional tracking. So like I, I, we got our DK2s and, you know, there have been a lot of issues, um, but when it works, (laughs) it's awesome, you know? Uh, So I I think it's like making that work all the time like that, you know, even a little jump here and there just brings you out of it, right? A little stuttering brings you out of it. But if it's always good, you know, when you lean into to look around when you peek around a corner, when you look up to read something closer and it just works like in real life, it's just uh, like, you're already there. Then it's just like, let's build stuff, you know? So I think we're, we're really pretty much there at hardware. I like, I'm happy that it will get better. Um, and of course we're really, really excited for eye tracking, which I think will be in the next generation of headbounded displays. Um, cause we can do a whole bunch of things with eye tracking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also going to be important for like foveal rendering. It'll you know it, it'll basically increase re- apparent resolution um, all the time for for normal use of the display. Nice. What are your um, what are your sort of you know uh, what are your more more far fetched predictions that VR will have you know on on people and society and, and humans in general like. Um, I'll, I'll throw you mine really quick. So I, I think that VR eventually, uh, you know, sort of how, how, you know, our, you know, younger kids today are like using Snapchat um, or are, are finding different ways to inter- interact with each other uh, that are that, you know, if you look at from like a, someone's older perspective, like someone older, they, they're like, what is this thing? What's going on here? Um, I think that VR will morph our sexuality I think I think um, you know because all of a sudden I can be a woman Uh, I can see what they see I can I can and and with uh, I feel I feel like the explosion of the porn industry in VR I'm going to not just see what they see I'm 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 probably gonna somehow feel like that's and that's gonna be weird but my body is ready for that like um, but really like in your minds, how do you think this could change us culturally, um, or or if at all? I don't know. I think it will be a big change. Uh, you know, especially as it gets really good and everyone has it. I mean, I 
I think an example of this is I, I remember the first time I went on a bus and everyone had their phones out and was looking at their phone. And I was like, this is weird, you know, because before then people would look around, they talk to people, but literally every single person on the bus was looking at their phone. I was like, I guess this is just how it is now. Now I'm totally used to it, right? Like that's normal now. And I think, you know, we're going to get to a point where either no one's on a bus because they're all at home in virtual reality, or we're all wearing augmented reality and people are just kind of looking all over the place. You have no idea what they're seeing. Yeah. I think we're going to get to this point where stuff like that's just going to change how, how people behave, you know, mm-hmm. in, in out in the world at their home. Yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. Um excited for the motorized flashlight attachment <laughs> accessory um full body haptic suit right? <laughs> um but again i mentioned therapies and i think that's a big thing yeah. um it could change you know psychiatry or um yeah, you know, a lot of psychological you brought up a good point of taking someone else's perspective yeah. which i hadn't thought of and i think that that could be really useful even just from like a philosophical or, um, you know, um, argumentative reasons, right? Mm. You could, especially if we have really immersive um, virtual reality movies or whatever they're going to be, maybe they're not going to be movies exactly, mm-hmm. but just actually taking someone else's perspective and kind of living through it or experiencing it. Yeah, I, I don't mean to sound like um, like I, I repeat myself too much, but this is a, a, a recurring thing. Thing that I always bring up, or that I try to bring up once in a while, is the fact that this V, this Oculus Rift thing is an empathy machine, and I, I am of the opinion that you know today we are, uh, as a whole, humanity is suffering a crisis of empathy. We just don't give enough, you know, fucks about each other, and um, you know, just look at you and maybe it might be my 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 naive altruistic uh disillusioned mind you know to think that now that i'm grown and i'm an adult and i look around and then there's wow there's still war um you know where where are my mars colonies already like where are the jetpacks that i was promised when i was growing up watching cartoons and stuff like um it's just you you think like with all this information surrounding us, you know, we would have the ability to make, you know, just better choices. Our leaders would have the ability to make better choices. But no, we're still fighting over silly resources that we could just easily share or come up with sustainable solutions. Um, It has the potential to do both, right? I mean, either it could be the most effective distraction we've ever had. Yes. So people can ignore it all. Or it can be the most effective way of showing people what's going on so they can, you know, be in that situation, have greater empathy. I think TV was an example of this, right? I mean, like, when Vietnam happened and all the footage came back, that was an example of increasing global empathy. Because people saw what happened when before they never would have. But at the same time, today, how many people never watch the news on TV and actively avoid it? Because it doesn't, you know, it's not, it doesn't feel great to see all this suffering that's going on either. So I think both are going to happen at the same time. Yeah. There's going to be, I feel like there's going to be the, the, like this, this opinion that's going to surge as this get, this is getting more and more popular. They're going to say, man, all you do is spend your time in VR. Why are you, why are you escaping? What are you escaping from? But on the contrary, I think that VVR could 
you know, they'll, they'll say like you're escaping reality. But, you know, to, to the contrary, I think VR could help us enhance our view of reality because, you know, something again I bring up all the time is journalism. You know, here we have the ability, we'll have the ability to see the world through the eyes of that Syrian child refugee stuck in a, you know, some camp somewhere with no hope of getting out. Or, or see the world through, you know, uh, a woman being uh, oppressed or being harassed somewhere in the street, you know, anywhere in the world, right? Like that, you know, just, just, you know, because, in, you know, empathy is, I feel like it requires some form of, like, introspection and, and really, like, just sitting down and stopping, like, just, all right, let me figure out what this person's you know, situation would really feel like if I were them. VR does the imagining for you. So all you have to do is, you know, you know, process through your moral parts of your brain. Um, skip the reptilian um, and, and see if you can, you know, empathize with them or, or feel something for them. Um, yeah, because it's because it's going to be both just like what you said, the, the most amazing world where we can all be distracted um, and I, my hope is that we can also be better informed, hopefully. Technology's neutral, like you said. Yeah. <laughs> Goddamn technology. Um, yeah, no, it's gonna be it's gonna be a fascinating world uh, we're walking right into. And since we're gonna be, I'm with you guys. By the way, I'm gonna live a thousand years as well. So uh, <laughs> we're gonna see it all. Um, what do you think is the most important? Or, or probably some of the most important things that are going to happen in this century like for, for humanity? Uh, the singularity. Singularity? Yeah. What does that mean? What does that yeah, mean depending you? on what you mean, right, yeah. I guess. Um, to me, it means the point at which technology starts accelerating so quickly, we can't realistically predict any aspects of the outcome. Wow. So... You know, the intersection between AI, robotics, longevity, biohacking, uh, nano assembling, you know, nano manufacturing. Drinking your own milk. Drinking yeah. your own milk. This is, and it's it's like... Um, I'll be what pushes it over the edge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and this is the place where, like, you think about all these different things, like, you know, yes, a, machine learning, AI, 3D printing, the, all these things could complement each other and you know, build upon each other to yeah. make greater... And, and to result things. in unpredictable advances. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you might be able to look at one thing and be like, oh, it's going to get here, then here, then here, then here. But when there's 10 things that are all advancing logarithmically, wow. you know, and they all can build off each other, it's hard to say what, what that'll mean. Are you more scared or excited? I mean, how does that make you feel just thinking about that in particular, like that, that notion? I think either everyone will die or it'll be awesome. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I'm an optimist, so it'll probably be awesome. Is it exciting both ways? Yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is uh, VR-wise, and we'll start closing things up. But, like, you know, so you guys are using VR to give people, I don't know if this is the right wording, but, like, some sense of normalcy, some sense of, you know, come, you know, if, if there was a starting line where everybody starts off, you know, or the majority of us starts off, you guys are putting these people with this condition back in the starting line, right? Like, I, maybe I'm, I'm doing it wrong, but, like, I feel like that's what you guys are doing. Um, it Could VR be used to push people forward? Like, could you augment people? Could you enhance people's visions or enhance people's cognitive ability with VR? Is that, do you think it's, that's a possibility? 
Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, and we're working on it. Yep, definitely. <laughs> uh, it's you know that that's the longer term goal. I mean, we're working on Lazy Eye right now, but our interest is in improving vision or pr- really improving perception. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't even necessarily limit ourselves to vision. It's it's about using new insights into how the brain works to improve people's perception of the world. Man, I, uh, I look forward to reading the Time Magazine article where you guys are uh, announced as uh, the first people to create a singularity type of human. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they did it. He's, that, you know, he's connected now. <laughs> he can see everything and everyone. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then unleash that that thing well that uh, let's one last hypothetical question if we're able to create human slash machine type of beings you know how do you think people are are are, are going to react like how, how are the laws going to treat that person is that going to be a full human is that going to be is that are people are we, we going to consider that a living thing um, now is this a person uh, is this could, thing created or is it a person who are part of a person which is put together with a machine. Let's play both scenarios. So okay. one scenario is someone so, so someone was genetically engineered with the best genes. We put Usain Bolt, we put Alicia Keys' voice, we put you know, you know uh, uh, Ray Kurzweil and Stephen Hawking and Neil deGrasse Tyson all together and throw them in that brain. Um, and then and then and and then you even augment it with some sort of you know nanotechnology like would that be a human if if it's from the ground up created like with that i think people have an easy time accepting modified people as humans okay um i think the hard thing becomes if you're able to copy the information content of someone's brain into software is that a human Right. It, 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 it was never biologically human. It was, you know, it's theoretically software. So we, in, in running on hardware, we understand. So, we, we, you know, maybe it's uh, we know it's deterministic. Right. Um, and I would say that is a human and we should treat, um, you know, entities with as much ability to think and feel as humans do as human mm-hmm. and that. You know, if we're going to make AI or something, humans made it. It's really an extension of our humanity. And we need to, you know, if suffering is involved or if experience is involved or if even just agency, if we can't know for sure, better decide on the <laughs> on the side of giving those entities rights, right? Are you of the opinion, opinion then, uh, Hume, that we should afford to give uh, dolphins more human-like rights then because they have a, a prefrontal cortex that, for, that is 40% bigger than ours. So there must be something going on in there that they must not be, you know, I look at dolphins and I see them and I'm like, and orcas and I'm like, that is, that is not, uh, that is smarter than my dog. <laughs> like that, yeah. there's something more than, you know, dog-like cognitive abilities happening inside that brain. I mean, are you of that opinion? Do you think that will... You know, I don't know if calling in calling it human rights rights helps anyone. Mm. They should have rights, and we should work to you know reduce the suffering of 
animals that experience suffering, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I think it's wrong to keep them in, you know, small pools at SeaWorld. Yeah. But, um... But they're not making human decisions, you know? They're not, um... I, I think they deserve rights, but I don't think they deserve full human rights, I guess. Yeah, we should genetically engineer them to have hands yeah. and then manipulate tools and then yeah. see what happens. Yeah, once they're writing blog posts yeah. and posting podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that, well, gentlemen, I mean, <laughs> I, could, I couldn't close the show on a better note, really. Um, so blog writing dolphins. Um <laughs> You guys have been the true scholars and gentlemen of virtual reality uh, and reality. So thank you really for your time. I really appreciate it. And I appreciate you guys bearing with me in the rabbit hole. Um, so how can people stay in touch? How can people support what you're doing and, and all that good stuff? And by the way, I'll include all the information in the show notes. But, you know, what's what's how can we how can we put this all together? Um, yeah, you could go to diplopiagame.com for information or if you want to contact us, um, you can Add me on Twitter. Contact me there. It's at James Blaha. Um, yeah. And you're at Manish Gupta. At, at Manishiwa. Manishiwa. Yeah. That's a cool name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, again, thanks again for your time. Thank, Thank you. you, Chris. Thanks for having us. It was a lot of fun. It was awesome.